0: This is a work of fiction. Honest! Ragbag presents Endless Impossible Written and performed by Frank Burton Endless Impossible will also be available as a book the fourth in the Ragbag series Buy a copy for each of your friends. You'll be the talk of the town. Later on, we'll enter the footnotes section. That's the optional extra content for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Let's continue with Endless Impossible. I called Dennis a couple of days later. I finally read your book, I told him. Sorry it's taken me so long. ''No problem!'' Dennis's voice echoed down the line at me. ''What do you think?'' ''I couldn't put it down,'' I said. ''Really?'' ''Honest. I read the whole thing in one sitting.'' ''It's all true, you know!'' he said. ''I'm sure it is,'' I said. ''It's pretty inspirational, actually. I'd like to do something similar myself one day, just write about my own experiences.'' ''You're very kind, Frank. That's made my day.'' ''Don't get me wrong,'' I added.'' It's not perfect. I spotted a few typos. Oh my God, really? Nothing major. Occasionally you get effects and affect mixed up. Oh, they're a killer, aren't they? He said. I didn't bother getting it professionally proofread. I had all my money tied up in the printing costs. 500 copies. I have 450 of them stashed away in my ex-wife's attic. If indeed they're still there. They'll be collector's items one day, I said. I wish I had your faith, he said. So what else was wrong with it, besides the typos? Oh, I said, not sure if I should say it. You're supposed to be my mentor and everything. Are you happy receiving feedback from a GCSE student? I've always said, if you want to be a writer, you should listen to young people, he said. So that's what I'll do. Fire away. OK, characterisation. You only ever sketched a brief outline of the people you met. Sometimes not even that. I never got a sense of who these people were. Were you concerned about their privacy? ''Not really?'' said Dennis. ''I just find it very difficult describing people. How are you supposed to do it? What are you supposed to say first? You can describe the way a person looks, but that in itself says little or nothing about what the person is really like, so I left physical descriptions out. You can quote a person on things they've said, but mostly the rainbow hunters like to talk about rainbow hunting, which is handy in its own way, because that's what the book is about.'' ''I suppose so,'' I said. ''It's a fair point, though. You've got me banged to rights there.'' I couldn't do characterization. I'd love to learn how to do it properly. Perhaps I should study your writing in some more detail, Frank. I love the way you describe Vanessa from the bookshop. From what I can remember, I just said she wears a luminous green tracksuit. It's a nice image. You didn't just say that. You wrote about, you know, things she did and said. Well, there you go, I said. Instead of saying Vanessa was an interesting person, describe the way she speaks and the way she acts. Ah, ''Seems obvious, doesn't it?'' said Dennis. ''Thank you. Is Vanessa still there, by the way?'' ''She is,'' I said. ''I still visit the shop sometimes. It's a nice place to sit and do my homework.'' ''Does she still wear the tracksuit?'' ''Every day. I suspect she has more than one of them.'' ''Interesting. She's an interesting person.'' We laughed. Then Dennis stopped himself. Uh, ''Sorry, Frank,'' he said quickly. ''Just notice the time. I have a deadline to meet. Speak again soon.'' Dennis called me again a couple of weeks later. "'Quick story for you,' he said. "'A man and his wife are getting dressed for a party at a mutual friend's house. "'Did I mention,' the man says, "'an old university friend of mine's going to be there. "'His name's Sid. Haven't seen him for years. "'His wife says, "'You never mentioned him before.' "'He says, "'I suppose the subject never came up. "'He's not a particularly memorable person. "'We'd probably have stayed in touch if he was.' "'She says, "'What's wrong with him?' "'He says, "'Nothing.' Sid is just Sid. He's not a bad bloke. He's okay. That's all. She says, right, so, he's just one of those people you've never really connected with. I understand. I feel that way about most people I've met over the years. He says, you won't be surprised when you meet Sid then. They laugh, and that's the end of the conversation. They say and think no more about it. At the party, the man introduces Sid to his wife. They exchange pleasantries, then move on to talk to some equally nondescript character. A little later in the evening, Sid pulls out a double barreled shotgun and begins indiscriminately killing the surrounding party guests. By the time the host manages to wrestle the gun from his grasp, Sid has killed 17 people. The police arrive, arrest him, and seal off the room in which the incident took place. Luckily, it's a large house, so the party continues at the opposite end of the building, with police officers popping in from time to time to take people's statements. By the end of the evening, all the statements have been taken. Much wine has been drunk. The man and his wife have almost forgotten the unfortunate incident from earlier in the evening. In the taxi on the way home, the man turns to his wife and says, Did you enjoy yourself tonight? She says, Yes, how about you? He says, Wonderful time, thanks. After a brief pause, his wife adds, By the way, I hope you don't mind me saying, I know you think he's okay and everything, but, Your friend Sid from university. There's something a little bit off about him. Dennis roared with laughter. I roared back. For a while, our helpless giggles were synchronised, making their own peculiar music. (laughs) That's incredible, I said between gasps. How did you come up with that? Did you come up with that yourself? It just came to me in a flash, said Dennis. I just had to give you a call. I knew you'd appreciate it. Thanks, I said. I'd better go, he added. I have a few more people to tell this joke to, then I'm off to bed. I tried telling the joke myself at school the next day. I didn't have many friends, but there were a couple of kids who I had a laugh with sometimes. Neither of them laughed at Dennis's joke. We grew apart shortly after that. I continued laughing at the joke privately to myself over the next few days. I wondered if I'd ever be able to write anything as funny as that myself. I threw a few ideas around in my head before writing the following letter. Dear Dennis, Thank you again for sharing your joke with me. It didn't go down too well at school, but perhaps my friends don't share our particular sense of humour. For now, I won't be sharing the following joke with anyone other than yourself. An estate agent is supervising an open house viewing for a large property in a sought-after neighbourhood. She's expecting some considerable interest and is hoping a successful afternoon schmoozing potential buyers could help her win a substantial bonus. As she'd hoped, a large swarm of eager-eyed young professionals descend upon the house. Within minutes, the place is packed, with customers firing question after question in her direction. One man seems particularly interested in the white goods in the kitchen, which she's mentioned are included in the asking price. What about the dishwasher, he says. The house is great, but I need a good dishwasher. I need a dishwasher that really works. Seriously, I don't have time to wash dishes. Can you demonstrate for me? She says, demonstrate. He says, you know, give it a little spin. Stick some knives and forks in there. Let's see this thing in action. The estate agent considers his proposition for a moment. There are lots of other people to talk to, hopefully with some slightly more sensible suggestions. But first she needs to get the man with a dishwasher fixation off her back. So she slips a handful of silver from the cutlery drawer into the dishwasher and turns it on. The man seems happy enough. He stands watching the dishwasher with interest for a while, enabling the estate agent to escort some other potential buyers on a tour of the bedrooms. While she's upstairs, the dishwasher begins to make a series of loud clanking sounds. Smoke begins to drift out from behind the appliance, turning a few heads. There is a small explosion which blasts open the dishwasher door. Utensils are sent flying into the air. The man who has been standing watching the machine gets a butter knife through the neck. His dying words are, I told you, it's very important to have a good dishwasher. A moment later, a couple lie dead on the floor beside him, one with a fork in each eyeball, the other with a potato peeler blasted into his chest. Hearing the screams, the estate agent rushes down the stairs, ushering the rest of the guests out of the door onto the lawn. Before she phones the emergency services, She gets straight on the phone to her boss. He asks how the open house is going. She says, It's going very well. Lots of interest. I just wanted to report a very slight issue with the kitchen appliances. I don't know if Dennis appreciated the joke or not. I assumed he was too busy to reply. We didn't speak again until the following year. I hadn't grown bored of our friendship or anything. I certainly wasn't offended by his lack of response to the dishwasher joke. I was going to suggest my own lack of contact with Dennis was due to being too busy studying for my upcoming exams. But in all fairness, I was too busy sitting around listening to music or sitting around reading in Vanessa's shop or sitting around staring vacantly into space waiting for something to happen. Then something happened. In the summer of 1996, I started working nights as a cleaner in a bus depot. It was something to do in between leaving school and starting college. It was me plus three or four other students. Our task every night was to clean out all the buses from top to bottom. It turned out I quite enjoyed cleaning out the inside of a bus. My workmates were a good laugh too. I laughed a lot that summer. I don't remember any of the things I laughed at, I just remember that feeling of being with other people and each of us throwing our heads back and hooting out loud, making noises I'd never heard myself make before. i just endured five years of high school, barely exchanging a word with anyone my own age. These guys were nothing like the kids I'd been to school with. Mostly, I loved spraying the cleaning solution between the ridges in the floors and pounding the mop up and down, squeezing it into the bucket. Maybe I didn't need to go to college. I could just carry on doing this. It was bliss in its own way. One night I was scrubbing the seats on an upper deck with two of my new friends, Johnny and Marcy. Johnny started telling a story about a school teacher he'd had years ago when he was growing up in Liverpool. She only taught him for a few months, but left quite an impression. Whenever there was a quiet moment when she had the kids to herself, she'd entertain the class with stories about aliens. One story in particular was about a baby who'd been sent to Earth with a mission to infiltrate humanity and spread a message of peace. And while she never stated this outright, it was heavily implied that the teacher herself was that very same alien being. I was hopping up and down on the spot at this point, waiting for my new friend to stop talking for a second. Then I noticed Marcy was standing next to me, doing the exact same thing. We looked at each other. "'You as well!' she said, as her mop handle clanked to the floor." ''As well as what?'' said Johnny. ''Are you guys even listening?'' ''Oh, we're listening, all right,'' I proclaimed. ''Are you going to tell him, Marcy, or shall I?'' ''Tell me what?'' he said. ''Her name's Miss Angel,'' said Marcy. ''How do you know?'' ''Because she taught me.'' ''How could she teach you as well? You're from Bristol.'' ''She obviously travels around,'' I said. ''Manchester too.'' What she taught you as well?'' he said. ''Maternity cover,'' I said, ''just like yours.'' You're sure this is the same person? How can it not be? She's a primary school teacher who goes by the name Angel and claims to be an alien. How many of those can there be? Johnny threw his head back and hooted with laughter. So did I. This is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard, he said breathlessly. I thought this was just one of those quirky little anecdotes. Turns out this woman is everywhere. This can't be a coincidence, I said seriously. What do you mean? She was a good teacher, right? Everyone loved her, not just her stories, but kids paid attention to whatever she had to say. Sometimes it was about aliens, but mostly it was stuff we needed to know. What I'm saying is she could have easily found herself a permanent position in a school. She chose not to do that. She chose to take on a whole series of short-term contracts, and not just in one location. She's moving from city to city. She's probably still doing it now, spreading this message of hers, whatever it is. "'Why would she do that, though?' he said. "'Why go to all that trouble?' "'No idea,' I said, "'unless she actually believes herself to be from another planet, "'but I don't know. That doesn't seem right. "'She's smart. She's up to something.' "'She was hot, though, right?' said Marcy. "'Johnny and I looked at the floor. "'Well, I, uh,' I began. "'It's okay. You can say it,' said Marcy. "'I had a crush on her myself. "'Didn't quite realise it at the time. "'I was nine years old.' What are you supposed to do with the sight of a beautiful woman at that age? I'd barely even figured out I like girls in that way. She was cute, I suppose, I said. Did she give you a picture to keep by your bed? I nodded sheepishly. You got one too, Marcy nodded. I thought it was just the boys who got one, I said. I suspect she could tell. Johnny scoffed. She could spot a nine-year-old lesbian. This is getting creepy. Did you get a picture, I said. Johnny nodded. I have a feeling I've still got it somewhere. I held my breath for a moment, then blurted out, Hang on! You don't think she was actually. My god, she was using her sex appeal as a means of spreading this message of hers. I don't really understand what the message was, anyway. The message was I'm an alien and I'm going to be. Let me get this right. I'm going to return to my home planet in the year 2002. She's mentally ill. Johnny concluded firmly. I don't think she is, I said. The message sounds crazy, sure, but she's completely in control of it. I've read about this sort of thing, he said. They call it a god complex. She doesn't think of herself as god as such, but not far from it. She can't possibly believe that story herself, I said. Why would she make it up, said Marcy. I don't know, I said. That's the mystery, isn't it? "'My friends returned their attention to scrubbing the seats. "'Am I the only person whose mind's been blown here? "'I said, we need to investigate this, guys.' "'No, thanks,' said Marcy politely. "'It's a weird one, but I don't see what we can do about any of this.' "'We could track Miss Angel down,' I said. "'Tell her we're on to her. Demand some answers.' "'Johnny laughed and prodded me with a mop handle. "'Good plan, Frank. I thought she was the mad one.' "'I'm serious,' I said. "'She's probably still out there manipulating young minds as we speak.' As we speak, it's three o'clock in the morning. She's probably asleep if aliens actually do that. You know what I mean. Okay, okay. Chill out, man. I didn't bother pursuing this any further with my new friends. I'd finally managed to meet some cool people and I had no wish to jeopardise my position as fellow cool person by not being cool. I suspect the word cool itself is no longer cool, but I am past the age of 40 now, which means I probably shouldn't attempt to update my lexicon based on whatever the new word for cool is. For one thing, I genuinely can't be bothered to find out. Anyway, I stopped talking about Miss Angel to my workmates. I didn't need their help. I had another friend who'd be guaranteed to be interested. The following evening, before my next shift, I called Dennis's office line. Frank, he greeted. ''Goodness me!'' How's it going? You must have finished school now. I have, I said. I've got a job cleaning buses. Oh, he said. It's just a summer thing, I added. I'm going to college. Good, he said. You don't want to be cleaning buses forever. I stopped myself defensively blurting out, maybe I do. How's the writing going, said Dennis. I've been a bit stuck lately, I said, or I was until last night. I told him about Miss Angel. I could hear Dennis breathing down the line as I recalled each detail. I still had no idea what Dennis looked like, but I could picture my internal vision of him sitting at his desk frantically taking notes with the phone receiver expertly clipped beneath his chin. I told him about my dad discovering the picture on my bedside and his awkward confrontation with Miss Angel the following day. I told him what Johnny and Marcy had helped to deduce, that Miss Angel had been moving from school to school, city to city, spreading her message to as many of the nation's youth as possible. You really think that's what she's doing? said Dennis. Don't you? I said. To me, it's very clear, he said. From the evidence you presented, there's no doubt in my mind as to what's going on here. I was just wondering what you think. I think Miss Angel is doing something... I said, I don't know what yet, but there's no doubt in my mind she's not your average primary school teacher. Very good, said Dennis. Go on then, I said, what do you think she's doing? Well, like you, he said, I'll need more information before the full picture emerges. But from what you've told me, there's only one explanation for Miss Angel's behaviour. A God complex? Ha, he said, good one. But no, this woman is not delusional. She's a very good liar. She needs to be in order for this scheme of hers to work. What's the scheme? I said. What's she trying to achieve? She's recruiting, said Dennis firmly. Recruiting for what? My best guess is Miss Angel has a long-term strategy. The recruitment begins when a child is still at school. She comes into your life, announces herself as. A kind of saviour figure, a living myth that will one day rise to the heavens, presumably after she's saved the world in some way, and then disappears, perhaps with a promise of reappearing at a later time, a second coming, if you like. Really, I said, she's taken her time if she wants to get back in touch with me. I haven't seen her for seven years, that's virtually half my lifetime. Oh, you'll never hear from her again, said Dennis. Most of the kids from your class won't, I expect, but you definitely won't. "'You're the opposite of what she's looking for. "'You openly challenged her in class. "'Nothing you said to her would suggest a belief in the story she told. "'Your dad turning up at school to complain about the photo "'will have sealed the deal for good. "'You're permanently on the naughty list. "'That kid who sat next to you, on the other hand, what happened to him?' "'No idea,' I said. "'He went to the grammar school. Haven't seen him for years. "'It's a shame you can't remember his name,' he said.' The way you described his enthusiasm for Miss Angel's teachings, the two of them have undoubtedly stayed in contact. No doubt she'll have found some ingenious way to bypass the boy's parents by becoming his secret pen pal. Like you did, I said. Me? Dennis chuckled. <laughs> I suppose so, Frank. The circumstances are somewhat different, but sure. Or maybe she's done something bolder than that. Maybe the parents are very much in the loop, like she's offered him long-term private tuition. It would be the perfect opportunity for indoctrination. Quite a workload, though, wouldn't you say? I said. Surely she couldn't offer private tuition to every child who expresses an interest in her ideas in addition to holding down a series of full-time teaching positions in different parts of the country. Maybe not, said Dennis. She'll be maintaining contact somehow. We'll need to find out more. How? I said. Oh, leave that to me, he said quickly. I have all sorts of contacts. I can track her down easily enough. Find out what she's been up to. Find out what she's doing now. I'll need your help, of course, Frank. Good to hear, I said. I'm up for it. I'll have to come and meet you soon. Actually, it would make sense for me to base myself in Manchester while we investigate this thing. Then we can meet whenever we want. Hang on, I said. You're moving to Manchester? Well, I'm freelance, so I can do my day job from anywhere, really. Seems a bit drastic. It'll only be temporary he said. I can take on a short-term let somewhere. It's likely the investigation could take several months. I don't understand, I said. What do you hope to achieve? For one thing, the scoop of a century. Is that what this is? Without a doubt, yes. Century is hyperbole, obviously. Watergate, for example, was a slightly bigger scoop than this, but this is up there with the best of them. And you can join me in this triumph, Frank. You're welcome to co-author this with me. It's a fine opportunity for a writer such as yourself. I ran out of words at this point and had to grunt enthusiastically a couple of times just to prove I was still on the line. Don't get me wrong, Dennis added. it's going to be hard graft. Initially there'll be no money at all, hours and hours of unpaid work. I'd completely understand if you decided to stick to cleaning buses. At least it's an income. But the time will come when the two of us can sell this story to the highest bidder. We won't be millionaires. Far from it. But we'll get our paycheck in the end. And not just a single paycheck. This isn't just a one-off front page splash. None of us are in it for the money, Frank. You'll probably take home more hosing down a double-decker than the average journalist takes home each month. I actually just cleaned the inside of the buses, I said. Sorry, I added. I do take your point. And yes, I'm still interested in helping you, whether it's a paid gig or not. I just want to find out what Miss Angel's been up to. If we can make a few quid from doing so, that's cool or not. I'm very glad to hear it, said Dennis. I'm sorry, Frank, but I'm going to have to disappear in a second. My head is spinning. I have many calls to make. I'll speak to you soon. There's just one more thing, I said. One question. You said you know exactly what Miss Angel is doing. You haven't said what she's doing yet. Haven't I? No, you said she's recruiting, which makes sense. You said she's maintaining contact with any of the kids who bought into her stories about aliens, which makes sense too. But what's her end game? Didn't I mention that? No, you didn't. She's starting a cult, said Dennis. A cult? You know what a cult is, right? Yes, I know what a cult is. Good, he said. Keep this under your hat. There's a possibility we might be joining one soon. Uh, what? I really do have calls to make. I'll be in touch. A couple of nights later, I ran into my dad. Due to me sleeping during the day and working at night, and him supposedly doing the opposite, our paths hadn't crossed for several weeks. Usually on my nights off, I'd stay up until morning, so as not to mess up my sleeping pattern. I was sitting on the living room couch reading a book when my dad stumbled through the front door. He was surprised to see the light was on. Hello, Frank, he said. What are you doing up? Reading, I said. Don't you have school in the morning? I've finished school now. All oh, right. So what are you doing now then? I'm going to college in September. College, he said. Yeah. My dad flopped himself beside me on the couch and patted me on the knee. I must say, I'm awfully proud of you, Frank. In the meantime, I'm working night shifts, hence me being awake at this time. What kind of night shifts? Just a cleaning thing. Well, we could get you something better than that, Frank. Daylight hours, too. Claw's got a whole bunch of contacts. He can put a good word in for you. Thanks, I said. I'm actually really enjoying the job. Oh, said my dad. Enjoying the job. Three words you rarely hear together. Good for you. I'm not entirely sure why I said what I said next. Perhaps in the back of my head was a distant memory of my dad volunteering to listen to my secrets and innermost thoughts. He'd made that offer when I was nine years old and in the subsequent seven years, I hadn't had reason to take him up on the offer. Can I ask you a question? I said. You just did then, he chuckled. Got ya! He reached over and ruffled my hair, which was weird. He'd never done that before. But seriously, he added, of course you can. Do you remember my friend Dennis who used to write to me, the journalist? My dad shook his head. Dennis Gleeson, I said. He used to open his letters thinking they were for you, the mentor. Sorry, Frank, I don't remember anyone called Dennis Gleason. Well, anyway, we're still in touch on and off. He's been very helpful with my writing. Writing, said my dad. It's a hobby, I said. The point is, we're still in touch. I talked to him earlier in the week and... You remember my old teacher, Miss Angel? No, said my dad. You met her, I said. You told me you liked her. Young woman, very pretty. Sorry, he said with a shrug. She gave me a photograph of herself to keep by my bed. Remember that? You found the photo, you took it back to the school the next day and confronted her. Did I? Yes, you did. Sounds like the right thing to do. Weird thing for a teacher to be doing. How old were you? It was primary school, I said. Oh, so it was like ten years ago or something. You see, Frank, a lot has happened in that time. I can't just hold all this information in my head. I have a lot of things going on. Well, it's more like seven years, I said, but yeah, it's still a long time. Anyway, I had this teacher, and she, as you say, she was weird. The picture was only a small part of the story. She claims to be an alien being who's been sent to spread a message of peace to humanity or something. Apparently, she's going to return to her home planet in 2002. I see, said my dad thoughtfully. His eyes opened wider for a moment. Hang on, you didn't actually believe her, did you? Not for a second. Good, that's my boy. She's obviously making it up. Or she's delusional, I suggested. No, he said firmly. Sounds like she's got a strategy worked out. It wouldn't surprise me if her sole purpose for qualifying as a teacher in the first place was because it gave her a captive audience of vulnerable minds. That's what I thought, I said. I've been talking to Dennis about it, and it's fair to say he's quite excited. He wants to write a story about Miss Angel, an expose, and he wants me to write it with him. He reckons we could make a lot of money. Now you're talking, he said, slapping me on the leg again. It's what I've always said, Frank. It's all about the contacts. That's how Claude's done so well for himself. I've probably had a lot more fun than my brother over the years, but unfortunately having fun has largely involved hanging around with a bunch of idiots, which hasn't particularly helped my career prospects. But you, Frank, this is like good news. You're on the fast tracks of fame. I pulled a face. No thanks, I said. You don't want to be famous? No. Me neither, he said. More trouble than it's worth, I reckon. Maybe you could publish it under an alias. Call yourself uh, Fred Barton. I'll figure something out, I said. It's not my name being out there that worries me. It's something Dennis said just before he ended the call the other day. He said he wants to... Hang on, I haven't mentioned his theory yet. He agrees with you too about Miss Angel having a strategy. According to Dennis, Miss Angel is starting a cult. A what? A cult? Like a religious thing or... Kind of, yes. She isn't claiming to be God, but there's something very messianic about her story... She's been sent to spread a message of peace to humanity for a limited time before mysteriously disappearing. Presumably she plans to disappear exactly when she says she will. By which time she'll have milked her legions of followers bone dry, said my dad. How do you mean? Money. That's how these things work. That's how they've always worked. Maybe there are other things too. Attention seekers, egomaniacs, narcissists, whatever else you want to call them. But mostly they just want to take your money. That's all Miss Angel wanted from you. Then you had the good sense to write her off. I was nine years old, I said. I didn't have any money. But you will have, he said. Well, the sound of things, pretty soon you'll be rolling in dough. She's playing the long game with this scheme of hers. Imagine if you've been suckered into it. How long before she's snapping up 10% of your income, or more? I don't know, I said. She may be a con artist, but I always suspected she wasn't seeking financial reward. This is what they all say, he said. They say some pretty reasonable things, actually. I'd imagine she did too. She probably said something about money not being important or material possessions not bringing you happiness. Come to think of it, I said she did say things like that, quite a lot, actually. There you have it, said my dad. There's only one reason someone in her position tells you to reject the idea of money and material possessions. It's so they can take your money and material possessions. If I were a cynic, I'd say the mainstream religions are doing exactly the same thing. Maybe they are, I don't know. All I know from being alive as long as I have is wherever you go, wherever you travel, you're never more than 10 feet away from someone who wants something from you. Maybe, I said, I don't think everyone's like that. Spot on. The trick is to stay away from the vultures as much as you possibly can. Stay away from people like me. What do you mean? I said. It's true, he said. I'm just another vulture, Frank. I'm actually very good at it. You're probably wondering why I've stepped through the door at this time of night. I've just driven back from a business meeting in Milton Keynes. It went very well. Fingers crossed I'll bag the company a lucrative new contract. You know how I did it? Oldest trick in the book. I befriended them. We had a few nice little chats on the phone, a few jokes about the football, that sort of thing. I can't stand football personally, but I try to keep on top of who's who for times when it proves useful. It proved a nifty little icebreaker for this particular client. Turns out we both support Spurs. I suggested meeting for dinner. If I bring a couple of brochures along, I can claim the whole thing on expenses. Nice meal, few bottles of wine. It's all on me. That swung it nicely. I heard he likes a drink. I'm teetotal personally, but I have perfected the art of pretending to drink it's all about sleight of hand I'll teach you sometime if you're interested so anyway that all worked like a charm we had a nice dinner next a few beverages well he did we had a good laugh and at the end of the night he'd agreed to sign us up for a whole series of upcoming building projects we spent about five minutes talking about business the rest of the time I was pretending to laugh at his god awful jokes I didn't particularly enjoy it but there you go at least I can say I'm a good salesman The secrets of being a good salesman? Hopefully that's obvious now, Frank. I'm a good salesman because I have the ability to convince the client that I'm not a salesman at all. I'm his friend. Mark my words, that's exactly what Miss Angel is doing. She'll probably clean up nicely. There's more than enough lonely, desperate individuals who'll be wholeheartedly willing to believe her. Right, I said. I wouldn't worry about it if I were you. He added, You're better off out of it. This is the thing, I said. This is what I'm worried about. Dennis kind of implied that he wants us to join Miss Angel's cult. You, what? This is what Dennis does. He's an investigative journalist. He's done proper undercover work before. He's got the skills to do it. The trouble is, I think he expects me to come along too. My dad crossed his arms, shaking his head for a moment. Bad idea, right? I said. Not necessarily. Eh? I know I'm not supposed to say this sort of thing, being your dad and everything, but really, what have you got to lose? My life, possibly? I have no idea what I'd be letting myself in for. There's only one way to find out then, isn't there? Really? You're saying you're okay with me joining a cult? Don't tell your mum, but yes. Go for it. This could be a cracking opportunity. Oh, well, I guess I should consider it then. You should. I will. Good. Prior to starting the cleaning job, my usual routine was to visit Vanessa's shop two or three times a week. The stool had been getting uncomfortable, so I'd purchased a second-hand rocking chair from a charity shop round the corner and persuaded Vanessa to allow me to clear a space in the corner for it. As long as I don't hear you rocking, she said, this thing looks a little creaky. I perfected the art of rocking silently. I rarely visited once I'd begun working nights. The day after my 3am chat with my dad, I woke mid-afternoon and decided to pay Vanessa a visit. I'm not saying my dad's advice had been questionable, but seeking a second opinion seemed like a good move. I pulled the rocking chair across to the small section of floor space beside Vanessa's counter. You're obstructing the walkway of that thing, she said. Shame, I said. There's bibliophiles queuing round the block. Point taken, she smiled. What can I do for you, Frank? What makes you think I want something? Why else would you come and sit beside me? As it happens, I could use some advice. I suspect you've come to the wrong shop. Wait until you hear it, I said. I told her about Dennis. Then I stopped telling her about Dennis and said, While we're on this subject, I'm afraid to say I've got a confession to make. Dennis knows about you. He knows what you do here. Vanessa climbed down from her chair and turned to face me full on. You can trust him, I added. You told a journalist about me. Not so he could write about it, I said. He'd never do anything like that. This business of mine operates on a need-to-know basis, Frank. Does Dennis need to know? No, he doesn't. You were gossiping. It's an amazing story, I said. I had to tell someone. Anyway, I was just a kid at the time. You still are. I told him years ago. He's obviously kept it quiet. Vanessa climbed back onto her seat and stared out of the window. I suppose it is an amazing story, she muttered. I'm not happy about this, Frank, but I'm glad you told me. I was going to continue with my story about Miss Angel and the aliens, but I could sense Vanessa was no longer in the mood for chatting. I disappeared into the corner and read a book. One evening, a couple of weeks later, I was just about to leave for work when I received a call from Dennis. ''Frank!'' he said. ''How's it going?'' I said. ''I'm here!'' he replied. ''In Manchester! Currently camped out at a hotel near the airport!'' ''Did you fly?'' I drove. How's the research going? Anything I can do to help? There will be soon, he said. I've spent the last few days on the phone trying to truck our Miss Angel down. I've called various previous employers, former colleagues, landlords, anyone who might be able to point us in the right direction. I haven't found her yet, but I can feel I'm getting close. Once we know where she is, if you're happy with the plan, I'd like you to come along and meet her. I'm thinking we can use your personal connection to Miss Angel to introduce me. She's moved around so much and been in contact with so many kids it's unlikely she even remembers you. So, our story goes, you remember her well. You were sceptical about her claims as a child, but as you grew older, you couldn't get Miss Angel's stories out of your head. I'm an old family friend you confided in, and I can't get Miss Angel out of my thoughts either. That's why we simply had to track her down and meet her face to face. And then what? I said. Good question! I suppose we'll have to see how our meeting with Miss Angel plays out. Maybe she'll deny it all. What aliens? That sort of thing. That'll certainly be her response if you suspects I'm from the press. I'll need a cover story for that too. I'm a long-distance lorry driver. What if she doesn't deny it? I said. What then? Then we'll have an opening. She won't tell us the truth, of course, but if she's willing to take the two of us on as her disciples, we can see first-hand how she operates. All we have to do is play the part of true believers. She'll let her guard down that way. You think so? Absolutely. If we storm in there asking a bunch of difficult questions, we'll be shown the door. But if we tell her we believe her, whatever claim she's currently making, we'll be one step closer to figuring out what she's really after. Does she ask her disciples for money? Does she expect them to carry out unpaid work on her behalf? Or does she simply want them to worship her like a goddess? I looked down at my feet and realised I was marching on the spot. Previously, the idea of joining a cult, if indeed that's what we were doing, was unthinkable, but now I was literally dancing with excitement. There was something else too. What was it? I couldn't place it until ages later, but it turned out I was excited about the prospect of meeting Miss Angel again. When can we meet? I blurted out. You and me, I mean. I'm free right now, he suggested. I have to go to work, I said. How about tomorrow? Sure, I usually wake up about three in the afternoon. Hopefully I'll have made some more progress on the phone by then, he said. Where shall we meet? How about that bookshop of yours, said Dennis. I've always fancied visiting. Sounds good. I let slip to Vanessa that you know all her secrets, so she won't be too surprised when you walk through the door. Just don't ask her any questions. She's extremely private about her business. I'll try to keep a lid on it. "'said Dennis. "'It'll mean breaking the habit of a lifetime but it's good training for our undercover mission.' "'I can't wait,' I said. "'Neither could I!' "'When I arrived at the bookshop the following day, "'I found Dennis already there, "'leaning casually against the counter "'and chatting with Vanessa as though they were old friends. "'I knew it was Dennis from the sound of his voice "'echoing out into the street. "'I had no idea what he looked like, but I wasn't too surprised by what I saw. His face was a bit wonky, just like his voice. He wore a giant brown trench coat, like a film noir detective. It almost reached the floor. Hello, I said. Frank, he proclaimed, shaking me vigorously by the hand. Nice to finally meet you, I said. I was just getting acquainted with Vanessa, he said. He's been here 20 minutes, said Vanessa, and he hasn't stopped talking. Dennis roared with laughter at that. "'In my defence, I've been forced to spend all this time talking about myself "'because I've been warned not to ask you any questions.' "'Thanks for that, Frank,' said Vanessa politely. "'Did you tell her about Miss Angel?' I said. "'Not yet. I was just filling her in on, uh..." "'He's mostly been talking about rainbows,' Vanessa chipped in. "'Very interesting, actually. "'As it happens, I wrote an entire book on the subject. "'It's a shame I didn't bring a couple of copies along.' "'Oh, I'm sure it's very good,' said Vanessa. "'In all fairness, I probably wouldn't have the time to read it. "'Truth be told, I don't really like books. "'I probably should have warned you about Vanessa's habit of speaking her mind,' I said. "'No warning needed,' said Dennis. "'It's an admirable quality. "'I wish I could talk for longer, but unfortunately Frank and I have to head off.' "'Do we?' I said. "'Where are we going?' Staffordshire, he said. "'Couple of hours' drive. I'll explain on the way.' "'On the way to where?' "'It's a hotel.' Our new friend, Miss Angel, is staying there tonight. So it turns out she's not a teacher anymore, said Dennis. He was eating a cheese sandwich at the wheel, revealing bits of his research between bites. Somehow, he managed to hold a cigarette in his other hand. What's she doing now then, I said. She's a sales rep for a company that sells solar panels. Quite a career change. From the way you've described her, it sounds like she's well suited to that line of work. ''Do you think this is a new strategy?'' I said, like a way of acquiring more followers. ''I wouldn't be surprised,'' he said. ''If she's visiting people's homes, delivering sales pitches in their living rooms, there's a captive audience right there. Plus, what do we know about her customers?'' ''If they've expressed an interest in buying a solar panel, they're likely to be open-minded people with a social conscience. What else do we know about them?'' ''They're rich.'' or comparatively richer than your average homeowner, at least. The perfect demographic for Miss Angel's scheme. That is, assuming that her motivations are financially based. Do you think that's what she's doing? I said. It's all about taking people's money. It seems that way to me, said Dennis. There's a special ingenuity to these kind of scams. You can't help but admire their tactics, in a way. If you're a victim of consumer fraud, you have a right to ask for your money back the perpetrators of a crime will be arrested and charged. But if some chancellor in the street tells you he's the son of God or some charming young woman claims to be from outer space and you voluntarily give them all your money to support their cause, well, that's your choice. You can't ask for a refund. It's unlikely Miss Angel will be arrested for what she's doing. Even if thousands of people surrender their life savings, they'll be doing it out of their own free will, knowing in their hearts there's no physical proof of any of her stories. So what's our plan here? I said. Dennis took his eye off the road for a moment and studied his watch thoughtfully. I'm hoping to get there before six, he said. I gather she has an appointment nearby at 4.30. She's likely to be with her potential customer slash devotee for at least an hour, after which she'll be expected to check into her hotel, most likely between 5.30 and 6. If we time it right, we can bump into her in the lobby. How do you know all this? Easy it up. I called the company, pretending to be an old friend of hers, organising a surprise party. I wanted to know her movements over the next couple of days. They were more than happy to oblige. They told me she'd be in Tamworth, staying overnight. I call around all the hotels in Tamworth with a similar story. I'm an old friend, just wanted to spring a surprise on one of their guests by the name of Eileen Angel. After two or three tries, I reach the correct hotel. They confirm she's staying there. Hasn't checked in yet. I called the company again, using a different voice this time. I gave them an address in Staffordshire and told them I was interested in looking at solar panels. They said, as luck would have it, they have a representative in my area today. I pressed them on the details of a sales rep's diary. They said, her last appointment finishes around half past five. Perhaps she can slot you in after that. I said, sorry, I can't do that time. Would first thing in the morning be okay? They said, yes, that should be fine. Our representative is staying overnight in Tamworth. I almost said, I know she is. I'm quite good at these types of conversations, but still, it's easy to let these things slip. I laughed. (laughs) Sounds like you're a pretty good con man yourself, Dennis. Not bad, he said. I'd probably be terrible at persuading people to part with their cash, but at the very least I can extract information. It's amazing what havoc you can cause when your only weapons are a notebook and a telephone. As much as I was enjoying Dennis's company, it was a relief to finally climb out of his car. His driving style would be best described as enthusiastic but prone to distraction, which matched his personality, I suppose. The hotel was very small, without a proper reception area, so he opted for lurking outside in the car park. ''Do we look a little suspicious just standing here?'' I said. ''We do,'' said Dennis. ''But not quite suspicious enough for anyone to ask us why we're here.'' ''As long as no one calls the police, I suppose.'' Don't worry, he said, lighting up another cigarette. This isn't my first time loitering at a car park. I couldn't quite believe this was happening. A matter of days ago, I'd broached the subject of Miss Angel. The next thing I knew, Dennis had tracked her down. Here we stood, all ready to confront her. It almost seemed too easy. Maybe that's just the way Dennis made it look. Five minutes later, a silver Mercedes pulled up a few feet away. This is her, I whispered. I couldn't get a proper look at her through the windscreen, but I recognised the long flowing hair. She opened the door and climbed out, looking the same as she always had. I held my breath. Something moved inside of me. I couldn't quite fathom this feeling as a nine-year-old kid. Now it felt all too familiar. A beautiful woman was standing in front of me, and I didn't know what to do about it. Hi, said Dennis casually. Hello, said Miss Angel. How are you? I'm very well. I was just about to clear the lump from my throat and introduce myself when Miss Angel said, I know you, don't I? I attempted to croak out some kind of response but stopped myself. When Miss Angel said, I know you, she wasn't talking to me. Are you sure? said Dennis. I do, she said. I've seen your picture. It's on the, um, you're a writer, right? You read the papers? Never, she said. Your picture's on the back of your book. I remembered your name now. It was on the tip of my tongue. Very pleased to meet you, Mr Gleason. Really? said Dennis. He opened his mouth to say more, but unfortunately it appeared we'd both been rendered speechless. Heads in the clouds, Miss angel declared. No, no, no. Mines, mines in the clouds. How could I forget? I wish I had a copy for you to sign. I'll settle for an autograph if you wouldn't mind. She fished a notebook and pen from her handbag and placed them in Dennis's hand. Are you okay, Mr Gleason? she said. Dennis, who'd been staring vacantly into space for the last few moments, suddenly woke up. I'm great, he declared. Very nice to meet a fellow bookworm. Who do I address this to? Eileen, she said. Lovely name, said Dennis, as he scribbled in Miss Angel's book. Funny thing is, now you've told me your name, I feel like I know you too somehow. We haven't met before, have we? Forgive me. I meet a lot of people in my line of work. What's your surname, Eileen? angel you're kidding he laughed really as you say she said i have a lovely name it's very familiar i don't think we've met face to face but the name where do i know the name from ever express an interest in purchasing a solar panel said miss angel offering a business card if i had the money i would sure he said anyway i'd better get up to my room she said nice to meet you both i didn't know you had a son oh i'm not his son I blurted out, I'm a family friend. Tarquin is considering his options for university. We've just been to an open day at Stafford. I nearly said who's Tarquin, but luckily Miss Angel stopped me by saying the name herself while looking me up and down thoughtfully. Tarquin, she said. Interesting. And what are you doing here? Staying at the hotel? Just taking a break for the journey? I see. You're off home. Where's that? London. Whereabouts? Bermondsey! Oh, Miss Angel was thrown off course for a moment. Uh, Bermondsey, that's south of the river, isn't it? Indeed. Anyway, I'll let you boys get on. Lovely to have met you. Hang on, Eileen, said Dennis. I've remembered when I heard your name. As you probably know, I'm a freelance reporter for various newspapers. Someone told me a story once about a young woman called Eileen Angel. She matches your description perfectly. I'm not saying it's you. It could be someone else with the same name and the same physical appearance. Stranger things have happened, as they say. Anyway, none of the editors that I'm in contact with were interested in the story. Too far-fetched, they said. One of them was worried about landing himself in legal trouble. I'm not sure why. In some ways, it's just a daft campfire fable. But from my point of view, well, you've read my book, right? I'm not a sensationalist. I just like a good yarn. And this story I heard about this woman, Eileen Angel, well... It really got me thinking. I even told Tarquin about it, too. Remember, Tarquin? You mean the one about the aliens, I said. Shh, 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 he hissed theatrically. Someone might hear. Listen, she said, it's getting cold out here anyway. If it's not too creepy a suggestion, perhaps the three of us could pop upstairs to my room and we could talk about this properly. How does that sound? Dennis beamed and patted me on the back. Sounds wonderful. ''Just follow my lead,'' Dennis whispered, as we waited for Miss Angel to check herself in. She was only standing a few feet away, but was engaged in conversation with the receptionist, so wouldn't have heard. ''You're doing well,'' he added. ''Why can't we use my real name?'' I whispered back. ''Too risky. She's on to us. I don't know how, but...'' ''Really? How's she on to us, exactly?'' ''No idea how she managed it. I just need to figure out a way of gaining her trust. It won't be easy.'' "'Somehow she knew we were coming here today. "'She seemed genuinely surprised if you ask me. "'She claims to have read my book, Frank. "'No one's read my book.' "'I have. "'No one who doesn't know me.' "'Miss Angel turned to face us with a smile. "'Let's go.' "'Upstairs Miss Angel took a seat by the window "'while the two of us awkwardly perched on the bed opposite. "'Would you like a drink?' she said. "'I'm fine, thanks,' said Dennis. "'Tarquin?' She said, uh, no thanks. I'll tell you the refreshing thing about that book you wrote, Mr Gleason." She said, it's not designed to be a bestseller. I got the distinct impression this was a passion project of yours, and if no one reads it, that's fine. For me, it was a much-needed distraction from the competitive world of sales. I can't stand competition. The very notion is literally alien to me. Where I'm from, there's no such as competition. There's no word for it. Well, strictly speaking, there are no words, full stop. How do you know all this? I asked, surprising myself with the question. How do you mean? I'm just curious. From what I've heard, you arrived on this planet as a newborn baby. You've effectively been raised on the Earth from birth. How do you know all this stuff about your home planet and this mission that you're on? How do you even know there is a mission? I suspect you've only heard half of the story, Tarquin, she said. It's more like a rumour, I guess, I said. It's true what you've heard, she said. I arrived here in 1967, having recently been born. I knew nothing of my mission, or indeed anything else, at that time in my life. I've been receiving regular communications from the Mirror. That's my nickname for home. The communications began in childhood, and have been taking place nightly since the age of about seven or eight. What form do these communications take, I said. It's probably best described as a kind of transmission sent straight to my brain. How does it work? Where does the transmission come from? The transmission is sent intergalactically via a series of physical devices placed at key points between here and there. Due to the distance, they were sent several years ago. I'm unable to communicate back. So it's all true, I said, everything we've heard. Miss Angel nodded. You don't have to believe it if you don't want to. I want to, I said. I don't believe it yet, but I think that, given time, I could really get into it. Dennis patted me on the back again and interjected. I think what Tarquin is trying to say is that we're interested in your story. We're fascinated by it. I don't know if you believe in this sort of thing yourself, Eileen, but it feels like our chance encounter outside the hotel was meant to happen somehow. I don't even believe that sort of thing myself. I wouldn't usually, anyway. But running into you like this, after hearing so much about you and the fact that you've read my book, It can't be just a coincidence that the three of us have happened to find each other like this. I agree, said Miss Angel. It's not a coincidence. Surely that would imply there's some higher power out there controlling everything, said Dennis. Maybe there is, said Miss Angel. I'm not particularly concerned about the existence or non-existence of a divine creator. The mirror have no need for religion. I'd say it's because they're too happy to bother, but that wouldn't be accurate. The mirror don't experience happiness in the same way you or I would. Often what humans often refer to as happiness is simply the absence of pain. The mirror experience pain just as much as any other species. We have physical bodies just like yours. You're looking at one right now. This is my natural form. And just like humans, our bodies can fail us. When they fail us, we experience what you would call pain. What would you call it? I said. We don't use language, she said. More importantly, we don't see the world in terms of binary oppositions. Wow, I said. We're very glad to have met you, said Dennis. Is there anything we can do for you? How do you mean, she said. For example, do you need any help spreading the word? This mission of yours, am I right in thinking you've been sent to this planet to let the world know we don't have to live in conflict? We can be like the Mirror... That's my mission in a nutshell, yes. So what can we do to help? Well, said Miss Angel, this may sound counterintuitive, but the best thing you can do to help spread my message to the people of Earth is don't tell anyone. Keep the secret as best you can. If you happen to encounter a kindred spirit who you believe will be fully receptive to the idea, by all means mention the story to them. But otherwise, please don't do or say anything. If the general public found out about me at this stage, I'd be ridiculed, publicly shamed and possibly institutionalised. What I'm doing right now is laying the groundwork for what happens to the message when I'm gone. I don't know which version of a story you've heard. These things can get a little garbled in the retelling, which is another reason I prefer you keep it quiet. But anyway, the precise date upon which I'll be returning home will be 17th of April 2002. When I'm gone... I'm hoping the community of people who know me well enough will be able to accurately and expertly present the story of Eileen Angel to the wider world. Community, said Dennis. Yes. That's it, he said. I'm speaking for both Tarquin and myself here, Eileen. That's what we want. We want to be part of your community. Are you sure, she said. You don't have to. We want to. Why? Why? For some reason, neither of us had come prepared for such a question. I looked at Dennis. He looked at the floor. ''I'm sorry,'' said Miss Angel. ''I realise that's a tough one to answer. You should give it some thought. If you're genuinely interested in becoming part of my community, you really should question your own motives. Maybe you just want to see what it's like. Dip your toes in the water. Decide if you'd like to be involved. Maybe it seems interesting.'' something to occupy your time with, a fun little hobby, a chance to meet new people. Maybe you're attracted to me. It's okay. A lot of people are. I'm aware that I have a certain effect on people. Honestly, I apologise for it. I don't mean to be this way. This is just the way that I am. We're interested, said Dennis firmly, but for none of those reasons. Go on, she said. I'd like to go on, said Dennis, but I don't quite know how to. As you say, I... Give this some thought before trying to put it into words. What we're looking for, it's indefinable, really. Would you agree with that, Tarquin? She asked. Yes, I said quickly, as Dennis said, indefinable. Let me give you a hint, she said. There's really only one good reason to join my community, and you're right, it's none of the reasons I mentioned earlier. Do you have a deep yearning to live in a conflict free world? I do. Said Dennis. What does a conflict free world look like to you? She said. That's what you need to consider. It's not simply the absence of war, the absence of arguments, the absence of fear and intimidation. It's so much more than that. In order to live in such a world, you would need to make a conscious effort to forget everything you've ever been taught. Take morality, for instance right versus wrong, good versus evil. These are concepts created in a world in which conflict lies at the heart of everything. In a conflict-free world, morality is no longer necessary. Indeed, there can be no such thing as peace in a world in which morality exists. Next, you need to forget everything that you were taught in history classes. I'm sure you've noticed this already, but it seems like all we were ever taught at school was the history of conflict. Did anyone ever mention what our ancestors got up to when they weren't fighting? While they were living together side by side, sharing, cooperating, developing new ways of helping each other to live? Did anyone ever bother to write a history of peace? We sat back and nodded thoughtfully as Miss Angel delivered her speech. For the first time this evening, this part of the conversation seemed like a prepared monologue. No doubt she'd delivered it a thousand times before. Think about the many words and phrases you'll need to abandon too, she continued. The language we're conversing in now is beautiful in its own way, but even that word beautiful is the product of a world dominated by binary oppositions. In a conflict-free world, there is neither beautiful nor ugly. Things are just things. Of course, all the obvious words and phrases will be obsolete too. Killing two birds with one stone, fighting fire with fire, slow and steady wins the race, and so on. Speaking of winning and losing, I hope neither of you are sports fans. I'm not, I said, speaking truthfully. That's good, she said. I don't wish to sound like a killjoy, but it goes without saying that it's completely impossible for competitive sports to exist in a conflict-free world. Of course, we can still play games. The Mirror play games all the time. It's part of how we relate to one another. The crucial difference is our games involve cooperating rather than opposing. We have team sports. There's only one team, and it's everyone working together. I'd like to say it's beautiful, but as we've established, beauty doesn't really exist. On hearing those words, I realised I'd been staring at Miss Angel's face with an unintentional intensity for some time. I looked away, realising my cheeks were turning pink. I hope she hadn't noticed. Anyway, she concluded... That's enough for today. The two of you should continue your journey back to Bermondsey and consider what I've proposed. What exactly are you proposing? said Dennis. This community of yours, what form does it take exactly? What's required of its members? I can't reveal that information at this stage, she said. You'll need to consider what we've spoken about first, the prospect of living in a conflict-free world and whether that's really something for you. Once you've made that decision, I can tell you more. I'm still not entirely clear on our plan of action, said Dennis. Miss Angel tore a page from her notebook, jotted down an address and handed it to Dennis. Two weeks today, she said, we'll be meeting at this location. If you're in, we'll see you there. If you're out, that's fine. Really, it's a lot to take on board. Just promise me, either way, you won't mention my name or anything we've discussed today to anyone. You have my word, said Dennis. Well, it's very nice to have met you, she said. Thank you for listening. Some words popped out of my mouth, surprising everyone in the room, myself included. I just have one more question, I said. Yes, said Miss Angel, her eyes piercing mine. Well, I said quietly, it's nothing really. Go ahead, please, she insisted. We're all friends here. Well, I, uh... There's something you said earlier that I'm trying to wrap my head around. You said the mirror don't experience happiness in the same way you or I would. It almost sounded like you're not one of them, she said. I suppose that's what I'm getting at. She seemed mildly surprised by this suggestion, but not in a way that implied she'd been caught out in some way. In all fairness, catching Miss Angel out wasn't my intention in this moment. Unlike my opponent, I was just talking off the top of my head. "'That's a very astute observation,' she said carefully. "'The fact of the matter is, although I'm not human, "'I was born and raised on this planet. "'As such, I had a very similar upbringing to the two of you, I expect. "'In order to survive, I've had to spend the vast majority of my time "'pretending to be a human being. "'So yes, sometimes I feel more human than mirror. "'Sometimes I worry that when I return home, "'I'll have little in common with my fellow beings. "'I've lived as a human for so long.' I have human friends, I read human books, I enjoy human art. Please don't take this the wrong way, I said, regaining my confidence for a moment. But I'm interested to know, do you have a boyfriend? Steady old Tarquin, Dennis snapped. Sorry about this, Eileen. It's a perfectly legitimate question, said Miss Angel calmly. A little too personal, perhaps? It's fine. The answer's no, by the way. I have no interest in acquiring one either. For one thing, I'll be leaving in a few years, so a long-term relationship would be out of the question. For another, I don't have a great deal of interest in sex. I've tried it a few times, sometimes with men, sometimes with women. No offence, but humans really can't get conflicts out of their heads, even when in the throes of passion. You're either a dominant and submissive, or you're two equal partners engaging in a kind of naked fight. So, you're celibate, I said. Talk with! It's fine, said Miss Angel. Yes, Tarquin, I'm celibate. Maybe one day I'll discover a human being who can satisfy my desires. If not, never mind. I'll be gone soon enough. Talking of being gone, Dennis cut in quickly. Sorry about the sex talk, I said, as in the car park. Don't apologise, he said. That was perfect. You did a grand job there, Tarquin. I laughed and climbed into the car beside him. ''So what's the plan now?'' I said, when we were back on the road. The car jigged from side to side as Dennis lit himself another cigarette at the wheel. ''Easy!'' he said, taking a puff. ''We wait for two weeks!'' ''And then what? Join Miss Angel's cult?'' ''Well,'' he said, ''I can't help thinking we'll be walking into a trap if we turn up at that address. Where is it, by the way?'' ''South Coast!'' he said. ''Devon, I think!'' ''Middle of nowhere, probably,'' I said. ''How do we know it's safe?'' ''What do you think she's going to do?'' said Dennis. ''Kill us? Why would she do that?'' ''Why would she invite us to join her community when she's on to us? That's what you think, isn't it?'' ''I think that's what I think,'' said Dennis. ''She knew we were coming, so she researched her. She even read your book.'' ''I didn't exactly quiz her on the content,'' said Dennis. ''It's possible she just found out the title somehow.'' But there's more to it than that. She knows things about me, Frank. Things I've never even mentioned to anyone. Like what? Dennis sighed, shook his head, took one last drag on his cigarette, threw the butt out of the window and lit himself another. I don't know how to say this, he said. I don't know how she knows about it, but not only did Eileen Angel mention the book that I wrote and published, she also mentioned a book that I haven't even written yet. "'A book I've been working on a treatment for in my head for years on end. "'I've never told anyone about it. "'I never even made any notes. "'Even if she'd broken into my flat and ransacked the place, "'she wouldn't find a thing.' "'What's the book?' I said. "'I've always thought I could finally make a name for myself with this thing. "'It's called A History of Peace.' "'I scrunched up my face as though that would help me understand. "'You heard her say that, right?' said Dennis.' She looked me right in the eyes as she said those words. Did anyone ever bother to write a history of peace? She did say that, I agreed. I can see what she's doing, he added. I don't quite know how she's done it. It's possible she's genuinely able to read minds. I've seen magicians pull off similar tricks. There are ways of doing it. Maybe she didn't know we were coming at all and she just read my mind on the spot in the car park. All she needed to extrapolate was my name and the title of the book I wrote. It was all about getting me on side, persuading me we were kindred spirits. I have to say it was expertly done, ingenious even. Unless, he shook his head again, unless, he let out a long breath. I'll tell you a story, he said. It's going to sound like one of my little jokes, but as far as I know, this really happened. A journalist friend up in Newcastle told me this one. One day, a man receives a knock at his door. I don't know his name, let's call him Jeff. Jeff is not the sort of person who enjoys being disturbed. He runs his own business from home and spends most of his time behind his desk. He doesn't get on with the old man who lives next door for this reason. All the noise he makes banging around in his shed, needlessly trimming his hedge with the loudest possible power tools and playing the bagpipes at midnight while drunk. No, really, that's the sort of neighbour we're dealing with here. But anyway, Jeff receives a knock at the door one evening. "'Reluctantly, he pulls himself out from behind the desk and answers, "'just in case it's some kind of emergency. "'He finds a nervous-looking man on the doorstep, "'who he judges to be somewhere in his late twenties. "'The man says, "'I'm very sorry to disturb you. "'I've travelled a long way, "'and I was hoping to take up just a few moments of your time. "'I don't mean to intrude, but this house, your house, "'is the house I was born in. "'I grew up here.' "'Jeff makes a move to close the door. "'The man calls out, "'Wait, please!' "'Jeff pauses for a moment, not opening the door any wider, "'but poking his head through to face the man. "'You weren't born in this house,' he states categorically. "'I've been living here for fifteen years. "'Before that, the place was rented by an elderly couple with no children. "'They were here for twenty years. "'There was a family here before that, "'but their children were teenagers at the point of them moving thirty-five years ago. "'Unless you're significantly older than you look,' You seem to have mistaken me for someone who failed to learn the history of his own home. Lots of people don't, I'll give you that. Plenty of folks know nothing about the previous occupants of the house they live in. For me, it's important to know these things. I don't believe in ghosts, but I like the idea that people leave something of themselves behind in a place where they once lived in, a presence of some kind. Funnily enough, whatever scam you're trying to pull here relies very much on this type of sentimental pseudo-spiritual half-belief. "'You could say I'm a fool for buying into it. "'Sure, you're probably right. "'But I'm not the kind of fool "'who'll open a door to a man like you.' "'Sorry,' says the man quickly. "'Oh,' says Jeff. "'that's all you've got to say for yourself.' "'Sorry,' says the man again. "'I seem to have arrived at the wrong house.' "'Sure,' says Jeff, and closes the door. "'A minute later, "'Jeff hears voices outside his house. "'The old man next door "'is talking to someone in the street. "'Before returning to his desk, Jeff can't resist taking a peep through the curtains to see what's going on. To his amusement, he sees the con man who knocked on his door engaging in what seems to be a lively conversation with the old man next door. After some further chatter, the old man invites the stranger inside. Oh, God, thinks Jeff. As much as he dislikes his neighbour, he wouldn't like to see him get hurt in some way. Should he call the police? That seemed a bit dramatic. Should he knock on the old man's door and tip him off? Or should he just leave them to it and see how this thing plays out? Jeff opts for the latter option. He returns to his desk, finishes off some bits of admin, then settles himself down with a beer in front of a TV. Before he goes to bed, he pokes his head through the front door. He can hear the old man and his visitor chatting away in the neighbouring living room. ''Oh well,'' thinks Jeff. ''what's the worst that could happen? Maybe the old man will get murdered. ''Then I won't be subjected to his constant clattering about.'' The following day, Jeff can't help noticing how quiet the old man's house is. None of the usual din. Maybe he's gone out. Jeff gets cracking with his work as usual, enjoying the peace and quiet. As the day wears on, it begins to dawn on Jeff that there's a real possibility that his neighbour is lying dead next door. In one sense, Jeff is perfectly happy to see the back of him. But surely not like this, he thinks. Not when I saw what was coming and did nothing about it. In a sudden panic, Jeff bursts out into the street and hammers on the old man's door. No answer. So he hammers some more. Eventually, the door opens. ''What's the emergency?'' says the old man. ''Oh,'' says Jeff, ''I was just checking you weren't dead.'' ''I was taking a nap,'' says his neighbour. ''What's your problem?'' ''I was just a bit worried about the chap who knocked on your door,'' says Jeff. ''He tried pulling the same trick on me.'' ''Oh, the young man from last night,'' says his neighbour. ''Lovely fellow!'' Used to live here. Had some stories about this place. Kept me up all hours with his tales. Ended up staying the night. Is he still here? No, he left this morning after a good hearty breakfast. I'll tell you, that boy can eat. Right, says Jeff. So he's gone. He stayed the night and had breakfast and that's it. He hasn't taken anything. What would he take? He doesn't live here anymore. The lad just wanted to spend some time in the home he grew up in. Who am I to refuse? Well, "'Says Jeff. "'Good for you, and good for him. "'Sorry to bother you.' "'Jeff returns to his house and sits back down at his desk. "'He can't concentrate on the paperwork in front of him. "'He can't stop thinking about what happened last night. "'Who was this man who'd come to stay next door? "'What kind of trick was he pulling? "'He'd obviously done this many times before. "'He'd had all of his stories worked out, "'an impeccable script, no doubt. "'And yet, all he'd apparently asked for "'was a solid meal and a place to sleep. "'Was he homeless?' Was that all this man needed? Or was there more to it? Did he knock on people's doors and tell them his stories because he liked telling stories? Was this man just a storyteller looking for an audience? It's not until later on when Jeff is lying in bed staring at the ceiling that the possibility finally crosses his mind. Maybe he was telling the truth. Maybe he did get the wrong house the first time. Maybe he grew up in the house next door and all he wanted to do was visit one last time. Could it really be as simple as that? Dennis drove on for a while in silence, that final question hanging in the air. Is that the end of the story? I said. He laughed, slapping the steering wheel. (laughs) Ha ha ha! Yes, Frank! I don't know what happened after that. You see what I'm getting at, don't you? No, I said. Let's put it this way. What if Eileen Angel really did read my book? And what if she dreamt up that concept about the history of peace, not because I thought of it, but because it's a good idea? What if we're kindred spirits? You could be, I suppose, I said. Part of me feels the same way. A lot of the things she said made a lot of sense. But surely that's what these people do. That's how they persuade you to follow them, because they appear to be genuinely wise and trustworthy and not of this earth.' I intended that last part as a joke, but Dennis just nodded, staring at the road ahead. Not of this earth, he repeated softly. Thank you for listening. If you're interested, there's the footnotes section coming up after the theme song. I can't tell you anything about it. It's only for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance please take a look at my website frankburton.co.uk where you'll find The Green Room a webcomic about celebrities in the afterlife there's also the Ragbag Rambler video series and much much more besides my other podcast is called I Like The Sound and we've got some great stuff coming up on that very soon indeed I will see you soon We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous, let's misbehave. When Adam won Eve's hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. One thing to little love birds, we're not a- above- Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, it would be the great event of 1928, dear. Let's misbehave. <laughs> Welcome to the footnotes. There's a wasp in here. That's the news from me at the moment. There's a wasp, and I think I might have gotten rid of it, but it might come back. I had the window open, and (laughs) so if you hear a buzzing sound in the background, obviously you can't reach through your device and let me know, uh, because for one thing, I am speaking to you from the past, and for another thing, uh, it'd be weird. It would be quite intrusive if you did so also. I wouldn't particularly... (laughs) I appreciate you d- leaning through your device and going, "Hey, there's a wasp behind your pal." Yeah, I know there is. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm in a situation where I opened the window for the wasp, and the wasp stopped making a noise. But I didn't see it go out of the window, so it's uh, maybe a cunning one. You know, <laughs> it's on to me. It knows. <laughs> it knows that I'm recording a podcast. <laughs> These wasps have got so intelligent. He's thinking, "Oh, uh, there's a podcaster here. I want to get, I want to get in the background of this guy's podcast. I want to like the wasp equivalent of photo bombing. Here, I'm going to be like this famous wasp. Well, I've got news for you, Mr. Wasp. No one really listens to this podcast. <laughs> You've chosen the wrong guy. Go and annoy Joe Rogan or somebody. You're in the wrong room." <laughs> I know there are people who listen, but I don't think there's that. There can't be that many people who listen to the footnotes bit. Only the hardcore enthusiasts, surely. And I'm not sure how many of you there are. So (laughs) essentially that wasp is just annoying a man who is talking to himself in an empty room. And, you know, if that's how you want to spend your day, Mr. Wasp, then crack on. But you're going to spoil the recording. (laughs) I'm having a buzzing sound in the background. I I don't want that to happen, really. got a text as well. (laughs) I'm not editing any of this out. Um, The reason why I'm checking my phone is that I'm waiting for the car um, mechanic to call me because my car's in the garage. So I'm just waiting for it. So if the phone goes off during this recording, I'm just going to answer it and I'm not going to press stop. I'm just going to let you listen to my... (laughs) conversation with a garage man you see what I'm doing here I'm being like this kind of man of the people guy you know this is what this is what you have to do isn't it as as a podcaster you have to come across as like a real person like maybe that story that I told you about the wasp being in the room maybe I just made that up (laughs) and I'm actually recording this from like a the comfort of like a BBC studio that one of my trendy mates at the BBC has loaned out to me and uh, could could be the case, couldn't it? Could be. Right, I'm back. i just paused the recording uh, to get rid of the wasp, who was indeed still in the room. He's up on the ceiling, hiding up on the ceiling. <laughs> you can't get one over on me. Um, so he's gone out the window now. I'm just updating you. I'm just letting you know what what's going on with the wasp. I know you really want to know about this stuff, don't you? Waving a cushion around in the air for, <laughs> for a while in... Um in front of the window somebody walking past looking through the window at that point just seeing me waving a cushion around in the air probably wondering whether i'm doing some kind of weird interpretive post-modern dance uh, but no, i was trying to get rid of a wasp so there you have it and i've got i'm having a text conversation with someone as well <laughs> man of the people stuff this is the real man of the people touch i'm having a text conversation While I'm recording my podcast. Uh, (laughs) Now, it's very unprofessional, of course, but to hell with it. To hell with professionalism. We're at uh, the fourth one of these footnotes things now. And as it happened last year, I was just... It started off very well and then just uh, descended into anarchy by the end. And uh, let's just do that every time, shall we? At this point, mid-series now. Let's just go down the route of, well, who cares? Who cares about... this This is just some extra bits to fill in at the end of the podcast so who cares what goes on in the footnotes section as a matter of fact there aren't any footnotes this time (laughs) there's there's literally no footnotes I had a look through and unless you've spotted some kind of the footnotes are basically I go through the the text in the main section of the podcast I'm not just talking off the top of my head as I am now it's a hundred percent scripted so I go through the text and I pull out anything that might be of interest, any kind of cultural references, and any references to previous bits to other bits of the ragbag universe, which now encompasses four books, uh, a long running podcast series, and an audio sitcom. Frank and Claude are following you, which you should check out if you haven't it's It's a wonderful thing that and so I am just distracted by by my phone and keep looking at my phone multitasking at its best really i think and uh, the garage still haven't called me about the car so i'm sure you're on the edge of your seat to wonder whether or not i'm going to be able to drive my car today or not i'll just have to walk better for the environment if the car is completely uh ready for the scrap heap and i'm just going to walk everywhere there is that upside to it i suppose we'll just have to see on the edge of your seat real edge of your seat stuff here now, I want to sort of say some positive things, I guess, in this one, because I think that the last footnote section, I was very negative. I was making a lot of very harsh comments about various different male novelists. Maybe it's unfair for me to keep pointing out their gender, because what does it matter what their gender is, I suppose? It matters whether their work is good or not. So I think it does matter because we're talking about a literary scene dating back to the end of the 20th century, which was very, very male-dominated. And a lot of these male novelists who were considered to be the best in the business just didn't cut the mustard. And it needs to be pointed out because I'm going to go into this rant again, aren't I? Instead of being positive, I'm going to start ranting about, (laughs) about these four guys again. These four guys, I'll tell you who they are. In the UK... Martin Amos, Salmon Rusty, Ian McEwen, and Julian Barnes. Now, Julian Barnes got off lightly last time because I didn't mention him. I was slagging off the other three. And Julian Barnes is kind of, he's not as bad as they are, I suppose. He's kind of like the cousin of the family who's good at doing party tricks. That's Julian Barnes. He turns up and, oh, look at all these tricks I can do. Look at me. Whoa, Julian Barnes. But he's in the same stable as them, I think. I think he, he suffers from the same disease that... He's speaking from a privileged position. He's white male middle class in an industry that is hugely dominated. And it certainly was at that time, at the end of the 20th century, the literary scene was just dominated by these guys who ticked all of these boxes. You know, like like I was saying, I'm not going to dwell upon the fact that they're white because not all of them are, but... Yeah, I think Julian Barnes is a talented guy, and you read his books, and they're very entertaining and they're very well written. It's just that he doesn't have very much to say, and he covers up for the fact that he has very little to say just by performing these kind of party tricks, as I would call them. Really, (laughs) like Flower Bear's Parrot, for example, it's a very good book. It's very entertaining, and it's a really fun kind of read. I recommend Julian Barnes's Flower Bear's Parrot and other books by him as well, but. If you boil it down, if if you have a look at that book, just boil it down to its bare essentials. And all you will see is Julian Barnes going, look at me. I know lots of things about Gustav Flaubert. Here's some facts about Gustav Flaubert. Here's how much I appreciate his work. And here's how much I understand Gustav Flaubert. And here is uh, me doing some tricks, <laughs> me performing some literary tricks for you, where I talk about how much I like Gustav Flaubert. And that's that's it. That's all it is. And that's fine, you know. That's all you're looking for. Like I say, it's a good book. It's very entertaining. And he doesn't have this horrible sort of sneering cynicism that Martin Amis had. And he doesn't have the dodgy politics that Ian McEwan has got. And he doesn't have this awful kind of performative wordiness that Salman Rushdie has. But the problem is, I think, underneath it all, none of them have anything to say certainly nothing radical they don't have any radical ideas and they don't have you're not going to come away from reading their books and think oh that's that's really changed the way that i see the world that's changed my perspective i'm not saying that books need to do that they don't they absolutely don't need to do that my books probably don't either But I don't pretend to be an intellectual and I don't consider myself to be better than anybody else. Unlike Amos, for example, who definitely did. But I don't get the impression that Julian Barnes is like that. But I I think underneath it all, he is pretty conservative. Not politically, but artistically conservative. And I read a series of articles he wrote about 20 years ago, I suppose it was, where he was talking about how much he loves john updike i can't stand john updike for for the same reason that that i don't like amos he just writes with this real contempt for humanity which has not aged well i think perhaps there was a time when that kind of cynicism that kind of sneering cynicism appealed to people and it, it suited the culture of the time i don't think it suits the culture of the 21st century at all And I don't know who is reading John Updike's novels now. Maybe nobody is. I don't know. I don't know who's reading Amos now. Maybe a few people, because he died recently, will have read the obituaries and thought, "Okay, right, Yeah, he sounds great. I'll check out out his books from the 80s. I think they might be disappointed. That's all I'm saying. But I want to say something positive. I've gone back into negative mode again, haven't I? Whether it's to do with them being men is a question that is fair enough for you to ask. Like I say, it's not about them being white. It is to do with them being middle class because they all seem to be from the same sort of background. And it's not to do with their sexuality either because very much part of this same set of writers but on the other side of the Atlantic. Check out Brett Easton Ellis. (laughs) He's quite a character. Absolutely hilarious. He had... (laughs) Unintentionally hilarious... Brett Easton Ellis is gay and he's very happy to uh, talk about that side of his life in terms of this, in terms of why I, as a gay man, think this woke culture that we're living in is just a complete disaster for all of civilization. That That's the sort of thing, that's the sort of headline that he draws quite a lot. You know, a lot of you will be fans of him, I, I presume. Uh, you may have read American Psycho and thought it was a great book. I certainly did i used to listen religiously to brett easton ellis's podcast which um it ended up being like a subscriber only thing and so you haven't it hasn't been like a a free thing for a few years a a few years ago i think maybe 10 years ago now was when he was doing it and he was kind of interviewing all of these people i was so intrigued by it he's such a strange character he really is. Uh, he's presenting this podcast, and he was interviewing all of these very, very high-profile guests, including Kanye West. Uh, in one, before Kanye went off the rails, and people of that caliber. And Brett Easton Ellis is just the worst interviewer of all time. He just he keeps on cutting his guests off. He keeps he, he just loves the sound of his own voice, and he just talks and talks and talks, and he can't get a word in. It's absolutely hilarious. I don't know if the If these old podcasts of his are on Spotify, I know that they're on YouTube because I I was I was checking one out the other day just to remind myself of of what the Brett Easton Ellis podcast was like. Trust me, it's so funny, unintentionally funny. And uh, he's he's really, really big on this kind of anti-woke thing. And he's at pains to point out that he keeps pointing things out like, oh, you know, I'm liberal. I'm a liberal man. And I'm a gay man. You remember that? Remember I'm gay. <laughs> He's of this same generation. I expect that there are others who I haven't mentioned. Jo- Jonathan Franzen, of course, R- really terrible writer. Well, I remember when the Corrections came out. Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections, and it was hailed as being like the greatest book of the 21st century. And you will still, if I think if you type "best books of the 21st century" into Google, there'll be lots of lists. And the corrections by Jonathan Franzen will be at the top of some of those lists as like a critic's choice for the best novel of the 21st century. And I really do think they've backed the wrong horse there. They really have. I think it's stylistically very conservative. It's like reading a Dickens novel. He's not bringing anything new to the form. And his attitude stinks. It it really does. He, He has such contempt for humanity and such contempt for his own characters that it's almost a parody obviously the critics who have chosen it as who have selected this book as being the best novel of the 21st century clearly they would disagree with that but i think i'm right and they're wrong so there you go i've spent the last kind of 20 minutes being really negative again haven't i um, but I, I think i'm just trying to get all this stuff off my chest so that i can move on and <laughs> i think i'm going to write something about this particular generation of male writers and why the literary world has been so wrong about them, has been so wrong to promote their work and has been so neglectful of other writers. At this point, I would like to introduce you to the works of Carol Hill, who is of the same generation as them. And she's much better than them and she's much less well known than them. I discovered this novel, I bought a secondhand copy It was just on a book sale in a museum that I I came across it. The novel is called Amanda and the 11 Million Mile High Dancer. And it's kind of a science fiction masterpiece from the 1980s. As I say, the author's name is Carol Hill, who you will find very little information about. And I am kind of desperately searching for more information about this really amazing author. Now, the interesting thing is she's completely disappeared from public life, I guess. I don't know whether she's still alive or not, because I can't find that information anywhere. She doesn't have a Wikipedia page. There's no website relating to Carol Hill's work. She has two names, which is confusing. She's sometimes known as Carol Hill and sometimes known as Carol DeShellis Hill. <laughs> so i was for, for a while i was i was trying to figure out what i was putting like carol hill and stuff into search engines and wh- why does carol dishellis keep coming up when and it's the same person so that's confusing but i mean at one time she she must have been pretty big cause, i mean lo- looking at this this is published by bloomsbury in the uk the quotes on the back from new york times book review and los angeles times new york times book review loved it Los Angeles Times has this to say about Amanda and the 11 Million Mile High Dancer. There's no doubt about it. This book is in the running as a great American novel. It's ambitious and strange, comparable to Pinchon's V or Hella's Catch-22, or yes, even Moby Dick. Amanda and the 11 Million Mile High Dancer offers us a theory of how the universe works why we exist here on earth and the meaning of human life. Have I left anything out? Yes, all the jokes, all the elegance, all the energy that gleams and glitters from every page. It's lovely that, isn't it? And that's a really apt description of this, as I say, really amazing book. And it's such a contrast to these writers that I've been talking about. Uh, I'm saying that they have nothing to say. Carol Hill have so much to say. uh, Every single page on here. There's something that, uh, like like, a way of analysing things that just kind of makes you stop and think. Puts like a different spin on all these different ideas, uh, ideas about science, about politics, and about philosophy. All these sorts of things. It's that every single page of this book is like this. You know, she has so much to say. And the style is so warm and inviting and there is absolutely none of this snarky cynicism that you were getting from these other writers during this same period and yet nobody now knows who carol hill is i uh, really am going to make this a mission of mine to first of all find out what happened uh you know what happened to this this writer who was kind of riding high on this sort of uh, critically acclaimed wave and then just vanished. She's She's got other books, uh, been publishing during the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. And if she is still alive, she's probably about 80 or 90 years old. So, you know, <laughs> she, she may still be around. I don't know. There's a wealth of information on a uh, blog post that I found online about carol de Shellis hill and just talking about each of her books now i've only read one of them so far i'm definitely going to read all the other ones there's a good sort of five or six other novels and the thing is you can only get them at second hand you know paperback editions of these old books there's no ebook available there is no audiobook available and they were all put out by mainstream publishers back in the day and uh, the last one wasn't even that long ago Uh, But even that's out of print as well. So something has happened. Maybe that's just the way it goes. I don't know. I mean, I know that there are lots of writers who have gone out of print and just been forgotten about. And a lot of them are really, really great authors. There's loads of them. And you could say that's the way that the market works. But maybe there's something more to it. I I feel like there is. I feel like something something must have happened to prevent this great author from getting out properly into the world and being properly appreciated by people. I'm just puzzled by it because this, to me, is one of the greatest novels ever. It's such a great book. And the fact that I had never heard of it, and the fact that you probably have never heard of it either, (laughs) no offence, but you probably haven't, You know, this is probably news to you, isn't it? Because, like I say, it's out of print, not available, only available in secondhand copies. And eventually, my concern is that eventually it won't be available at all. And that would be a real shame. I really want to make it my mission to do something about this. And there is no Carol Hill website, for example. Maybe I can start one. (laughs) Maybe that can be a thing that I can do. I can... <laughs> I know how to put a website together. I've got a website, and uh, I've actually got two websites. I can have a third one dedicated to Carol Hill. I'd rather do that rather than set up like a Carol Hill Appreciation Society on Facebook or something. Can't be bothered with all that, and I don't know how many people would join because nobody knows who she is now. Very difficult, to, but I I think I want to do something about it because I think. I think it's just a bit of a travesty that this has happened. It could be the case, I mean, if I do the research, it could be the case that Carol Hill deliberately sabotaged her own career because she didn't want to be famous. I know how she feels, because I certainly don't want to be. And uh, I'm in this kind of quandary myself where um, I'm actually absurdly talented. I really am. Uh, It sounds arrogant for me to say, but I am absurdly talented. (laughs) really am I'm, i I'm, I'm absolutely brilliant you know and at some point people are going to catch on to this you know my books are going to become bestsellers and i'm not going to be very comfortable with that because i don't want to be famous at all um as a matter of fact what i'm going to do after i've finished this bag series is i'm going to disappear and i'm going to continue to write books but i'm going to do it anonymously using an alias So we've got Endless Impossible, which is the fourth ragbag book. And the fifth one I am going to write, that is going to be the last one in the series. It's going to round things off really, really nicely. It's going to be great. I haven't written it yet, but uh, trust me on this. You're going to be wanting to watch out for it. The fifth one one—it's like the final part in the series. And this is just an idea. I might change my mind, but the way that I feel at the moment is that The fifth ragbag book is going to be the last book that I write as Frank Burton. I'm just going to go underground after that. As a matter of fact, I've started writing a book which I intend to publish anonymously. I'm not going to tell you anything about it because that would spoil it, wouldn't it? I just want to be like Thomas Pinchon, the aforementioned Thomas Pinchon, who um, was mentioned in that quote from the Los Angeles Times that I just read out. Carol Hill was compared to Pinchon which I think is a very fair comparison. Pinchon is uh, obviously a great writer but I think what Hill has that Pinchon doesn't have is a real kind of accessibility and a real kind of a real kind of entertainment value to what is a very kind of intellectual book but she makes it very entertaining and she makes it very accessible. You know, I love Thomas Pinchon but you get to a point where it's just unreadable, really. <laughs> Gravity's Rainbow is such a great book, right? I couldn't finish it because it's it's too dense, it's too wordy, and it's fundamentally unreadable. And uh, <laughs> I don't know anyone who has read Gravity's Rainbow all the way through. Maybe Pinchon hasn't. <laughs> Maybe he didn't even go back and correct his, his typos. Who knows? Probably... The last few chapters are probably just riddled with typos because who would know? No one has got that far. (laughs) But yeah, watch this space for Carol Hill. I'll be talking about Carol Hill again in the future because I really have fallen in love with this woman. And the other book I wanted to talk to you about is another one that I think kind of backs up this point that I'm making about authors with something to say versus authors with nothing to say. And if you want to make something of the fact that I'm recommending to you a pair of female authors, then go ahead, make something of it. (laughs) For the record, I'm not saying that women are better at writing than men. Why would I say that? I am myself, am a male novelist. So I wouldn't say that, would I? (laughs) This is a graphic novel, or graphic memoir, should I say, by Kate Beaton. And it is called Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands. Now, it's not to be confused with Ducks Newburyport by Lucy Ellman, which is uh, another great book. Uh, I must confess it's another one that I wasn't able to finish because it's very, very long. And it's just a big load of stream of consciousness, quite a modernist kind of Virginia Woolf type style, which is great. But I find it difficult to get through. I think Duck's New Report is a great book and I I think uh, I've got nothing bad to say about it as such other than I found it difficult to read in the end. But just because I found it difficult to read doesn't mean that it's bad. You know, the same with Pinchon, you know. Pinchon is a great author, regardless of whether I was able to finish Gravity's Rainbow or not. It's just a great work of art. But it just means there's very little I have to say about it because (laughs) because you can't have a real understanding of a book that you're not able to finish. It's as simple as that. But Ducks by Kate Beaton is very, very easy to read. I mean, it's, sometimes it's difficult to read because of some of the subject matter in there that kind of deals with her direct personal experience of rape and sexual assault, which is dealt with in a very interesting way, I think. And I won't say much more than that, really. I think difficult for me to describe what I mean when I say it's dealt with in an interesting way. But I, I definitely think you should check this out. It's, as uh, I say, it's. Uh, I keep wanting to call it a graphic novel. I, I suppose the correct term would be graphic memoir because it is a non fiction book in like comic strip form. You may know Kate Beaton as um, the creator of the webcomic Hark a Vagrant, which is very, very good. I mean, it's very, very different to to this particular book that she's written. Um, hark a vagrant Uh, i think a a lot of people who listen to this will like it there's a lot of kind of jokes about 19th century literature and uh, a lot of kind of in jokes about the literary community and stuff like that and it's very very funny really kind of laugh out loud funny (laughs) comic which is they're just kind of i think they're all just kind of like one page or even just like a four panel thing sometimes but there's a whole collection of them available uh, that they were online. I don't think they're online anymore. I think because they're selling them as, as a book, they've taken them off the internet and now you have to buy them in a book, which is, is, is very much worth doing. But Ducks is basically Kate Beaton's account of these two years that she spent working for this oil company in this very kind of, kind of macho environment. And her experience as a young woman in that environment and the the, this kind of macho culture that normalizes sexual assault it doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs does it but it really is it it, it's 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 very funny and it really just puts you in the shoes of the central character i'm talking about it as though it's fiction but (laughs) that that's the way that i think of things i suppose so it, it really kind of puts you in in that person's shoes working in that job around all these creepy men and the attitude of other women within that environment as well and having to interact with people in a certain way and there's absolutely nothing preachy about it either there's there's nothing she's she's not telling people what to think she's just describing her own experiences and the use of the kind of comic strip form to do that is such an interesting way in to talking about these real life experiences some of which were horrendous experiences. And like I say, it's not easy to get through. But you get to the end of that book feeling like you have been there yourself, like you have been on this journey with this author through this kind of uh, these two years that she was working in, in this kind of weird job. And it's like, yeah, this is what we want. Or this is what I want anyway. I, I want to read stuff by people who have got something to say. I know I keep banging this drum about writers having something to say, and I'm not saying that I, as a writer, have got... What was I trying to say with Brolywood, for example? Not much, really. It was just a bit of a laugh, wasn't it? Whereas uh, I think more of this mindset now, Endless Impossible, I would like to think, is a book that's got quite a lot to say. And there's a lot of the content in this book, it, it may not be apparent from at this midway point, but there is quite a bit coming up where I talk about the way that male writers write about women and the sort of things that they get wrong. And what can we do about this? Writers, whether they're male, female, transgender, we all have a responsibility to represent people as people without resorting to stereotyping and cliche and without putting words in the characters mouths like just using a character to express your own opinion in the way that I presume for example Ian McEwan does in his Brexit novel (laughs) I presume I have not read it I've got no intention of doing so but I presume Ian McEwan's Brexit novel is just a bunch of people sitting around saying Ian McEwan's opinions (laughs) through dialogue (laughs) there'll be some kind of idiot character who takes the other side and then the characters who are saying Ian McEwan's opinions will give their rebuttal you know what I'm trying to say is that's not real life is it that's not real life and we have this responsibility to reflect what is really going on and represent who people really are if you're a male writer have a look at your female characters Do they look like real people? Or is it just your idea of what a woman is? This is what a woman would say. This is how a woman would speak. Because I'm very much getting to grips with this myself. I don't think I was that great at fighting female characters when I started. Somebody said to me, they read my short story collection, A History of Sarcasm. And one thing they said was, you know, it's good. But it occurs to me that all of your characters are disillusioned, young, working class men. I kind of made a joke of that and said, yeah, hello. <laughs> Pleased to meet you. This is who I am. But I think part of the reason was I didn't have the skills at that point to write female characters. So the female characters in my early short stories were pretty one-dimensional and they only really existed as a kind of counterpoint to these rather self-obsessed male characters who were at the forefront of the stories and I think one slightly critical thing I will say about my own work as well is that in the novel 100 which I think objectively speaking is the best thing I've ever done (laughs) Uh, I'm not saying the ragbag books aren't good because they're great you know what I mean but I think I'm never going to really live up to 100 as a kind of work of art if you like I think 100 is is that but I think that there's a strong female character in that book. Uh, her name's Eliza. She's one of the two main characters in the book. And I was quite pleased with myself at the time. I thought, yeah, this is, this is a strong female character. She's very confident, very independent, very feminist without being preachy or political about it. And I think the problem with that character is that she doesn't really have any flaws. That's a problem, I think. She was created as this kind of, kick-ass girl superhero which is a perfectly good thing in itself but I think characters need to have flaws and that's where I was going wrong with this I think that I wasn't giving this female character enough respect I don't think in terms of I didn't deal with it in the same way that I would with a male character because I think probably just being male myself I find it easier to explore a male character's flaws because it's easier for me to put myself into his shoes to an extent I'm basically representing myself on the page. Whereas if you're writing a female character and you've never been female, you kind of have to think outside the box a little bit more. But I would like to think that female characters in the ragbag books I've done a better job with. They've definitely got flaws, they have as much depth as the male characters do, and I haven't resorted to cliche in the way that I easily could have done. But more on that later, we're going to be discussing that in later episodes because the second half of the book slash podcast series is going to kind of delve into these a little bit more but anyway i've been talking for far too long now (laughs) i should have to chop this down a little bit (laughs) remember the wasp that was a long time ago now wasn't it i've been talking for so long i've forgotten all about the wasp the garage hasn't called me (laughs) man of the people man of the people right anyway I'll see you in the next episode. Cheerio.